Bible. We started at Genesis, and now we're uh, in Thess- Thessalonians. It's very hard for me to say. Um, and so we found Jesus in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and so on and so on. And uh, of course, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, and so and so on. And so we are going to hopefully get to the end of the Bible, which is Revelation. Uh, but right now we're in First and Second Thessalonians. Thessalonians. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, it's awesome because Paul wrote this, uh, the first book, kind of as encouragement, and the second book, kind of as a, um, you know, an underpinning of doctrine, an underpinning of Jesus is king of the world. And he is coming again. See, uh, we have this uh, lovely thing on our wrist called a what? A watch. And, you know, it's 11.34, and Frankie might be preaching until 12.05, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what is happening here? Actually, in the, in the Old Testament, they used to have service all day long. So, just culturally, we're like, oh, yes, we took 30 minutes. It's done. Uh, we got to go. Uh, if you were in the South, you know, you've got to be done at 12 o'clock because everybody wants to rush to, you know, Golden Corral or, uh, you know, go get that sweet tea. You know, half, half sugar, half tea. Anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, Jesus is coming. And so there is no doubt in my mind, uh, 99.999% of the Bible has come true, and Jesus fulfilled most of the Bible. Actually, all, all the Old Testament. That's why we need him, because he fulfilled that. And so if, if something is 99.999% correct in the promises, what do you think is going to happen with the... It's going to happen, right? I mean, that's a pretty good chance. And so the only thing that has not been fulfilled is what? Jesus coming back. And the way the world is, it's getting close, people. Now, they have said that since when? Since Jesus went back up to heaven. Okay, We have been in the end times since Jesus went back to heaven. Okay, Because someday, somewhere, somehow, Jesus is coming back. And we believe that. And there was 500 or more witnesses after he resurrected. So we know that historically that's accurate. We had eyewitnesses. We had people outside the Bible, inside of the Bible. Uh, in the Roman era, we have documents all over the place that he came back to life. And so he's sitting at the right hand of God. And he's coming. So there's two letters that Paul wrote uh, to the church of Thessalonica. I can do that one. I don't know why I can't do anyway. And uh, it was preserved in the New Testament. The first letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written to a community of believers who had been Christians for only a short period of time, probably no more than a few months. We learn from the book of Acts that during Paul's stay in the city of Thessalonica, he preached in a Jewish synagogue on three successive Sabbath days. He evidently stayed in the city for some time after and continued his work with the Gentiles. Remember, uh, the Jewish nation... Uh, was a uh, follower of the Old Testament and God, and then we have the Gentiles who really didn't follow anything, and it, unless you're a Jew, you're called a Gentile, and if you are not a Gentile, then you are a Jew. And so, uh, both of them are now under Jesus. Uh, there is no, at least in Jesus' mind, there's either you're following Jesus or you're not following Jesus. That's it. There's no like other thing in that category. And so, we're all learning together through Jesus and through the Bible. And so, 
he was writing not only to the Gentiles, but he also written, was writing to the Jews, and both of them converted uh, to Jesus' ways. And so remember, uh, they were called Christians first at Antioch, and Christians is just a fancy word saying Christ follower. Okay, so when you're a, a Christian, you are a Christ follower or a Jesus follower. Um, I love, uh, if you want to get some old school going in your uh, record player, I know, I, I have a record player, anyway, uh, it, um, DC Talk and the Jesus Freak album, beautiful album. Anyway, I'm a Jesus Freak. So here we go. And uh, people in Thessalonica were Jesus Freaks, so that's good. Um, and so he was writing to them to underpin what they believe. And it's a really good book. So we're going to watch a, a little bit of video here, and it explains the whole book um, in a short video. Go for it. Go back one more. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul. And the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer. And then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the Creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus.
And so Paul goes on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews, and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their faith when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer, that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. First Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, 
meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. Nothing has, nothing has changed much, has it? We're supposed to be different, we're supposed to be not like the world, and we're supposed to be loving and caring for others. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. I I like that. We, we should have that at more funerals. Oh, they're just asleep. Because their spirit is already with Jesus. They're, you know, the, the, the next breath is there with Jesus. And so they've just fallen asleep. They're going to be back. They're going to be resurrected. And on this side of the grave, we weep, yes? Okay? There's no shame to weep for those who have passed away. But we know if they are following Jesus, we have that hope. We know we're going to see them again. We're going to be in the air with them. This is the, I love this because I feel like I could be like my dreams where I fly. You ever had those dreams? You just like flying and like, yeah. Anyway, I think that would be cool. I mean, Jesus coming down in a cloud and I'm flying up. And anyway, I watch too many science fiction movies. Okay, so uh, here is Paul saying, look, these people have died because of their faith. They're not there Forever, we're, we're going to be resurrected with each other when Jesus comes back. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Can you just see that? I mean, when my dad spoke in our house, you think I'm loud. Boy, he had a powerful voice. Frank Thomas Sawicki Jr., get your... You know, he would, it was powerful. Everybody in the house would hear it. Some of the neighbors, too. And it wasn't even that he was yelling. He just had some kind of, I don't know, extra microphone in his body somewhere. And it was authoritative. But a lot of times it wasn't with love. But when Jesus comes back, he is going to be loud and authoritative and loving. Verse 17, and after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, the cool thing is, he ends this as it says this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think we need to talk about that kind of stuff more often. Than bite, biting each other, or you know, backbiting, or gossiping, or hatred words. We should be like saying, "Hey, you know, we're going to be caught up together. The the people that are passed away are just asleep. We're gonna we're gonna see them. We're gonna be with Jesus. We're gonna have this miraculous, authoritative voice coming out of the clouds, and He's gonna come down, and we're gonna go up, and we're gonna be all together forever. So, if you can't love me now, and you want to get to heaven, why?" Well, 
you're not going to love me up there. So, you know, love is like the foundation of everything. That we love God, and we do what he commands because we love him, and we love others, and we put ourselves last. That's pretty much the whole New Testament. Love God, love others, and put yourself last. Now, if we all did that perfectly, would we be in need? No. Would we have homelessness? No. We would have people in jail that that uh, think there's no hope? No. We would be perfectly in sync with God's direction of loving him, loving others, and putting ourselves last. Because a true leader of the church, a true leader of, of following Christ is a servant leadership. If you are not serving, then you're not a good leader. Serving others. Because we're serving Jesus first, we're serving others, and we put ourselves last. And everybody's needs would be met. Everybody's needs will come first before ours. And so, Paul is encouraging them. Especially, just think about it, they're in Rome. (laughs) They're with Caesar, who called himself God on earth. And if you said that Jesus is Lord, you just signed your death warrant in Rome. And so here's Paul trying to encourage them, saying, look, stay faithful. It's okay if we die for our faith. It's okay because we're going to be caught up with Jesus. And that's awesome. That's more encouraging than saying, well, no, I don't want to die. I'm going to stay over here in my corner and not say anything. We should be bold, but in a loving way. Because Jesus is awesome and powerful and loving and merciful and giving instead of what the world offers. And so Paul writes a second letter. I'm going to watch a little video too. And this one just... You know how Paul is. If you've read some of the letters in the New Testament, Paul is just like, here it is. The second time he writes something, he's just like, I'm going to... I was nice and loving here, but not that he's not nice or loving here, but he's going to tell the truth like it is. So here we go. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So not long after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he got a report about the Christians in Thessalonica, that the problems he had addressed in that letter not only had continued, but had gotten worse. The persecutions had intensified, and the Thessalonian Christians had become confused and scared about the return of Jesus. So Paul sent off this short letter, which is designed to have three sections that address the three problems in this church. Paul first offers hope in the midst of their continued persecution, and then he offers clarity about the coming day of the Lord, and then finally he brings a really specific challenge to the idle, people who were refusing to work normal jobs. And the end of each of these sections is clearly marked by a short closing prayer. Paul opens with a thanksgiving prayer for the Thessalonians' continued faithfulness and love, and specifically for their endurance. He's learned that their Greek and Roman and perhaps even Jewish neighbors have intensified their persecution of these Christians. They're a religious minority facing violent oppression. And Paul's worried that they might give up on Jesus if it gets worse. So Paul reminds them, like he did in the first letter, that they're suffering because of being associated with Jesus. It's a way of participating in God's kingdom. Jesus was inaugurated as king by his suffering on the cross. And so his followers will show their victory over the world by imitating Jesus' nonviolence 
and patient endurance. Paul also reminds them that this won't last forever. When Jesus returns, he will bring his justice to bear on those that have oppressed them and shed the blood of the innocent. Specifically, he says that their punishment is to be banished away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul does not speculate here on the fate of those who reject Jesus, except to say that throughout their lives they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and in the end, they get what they want. Relational distance from their creator and their king. And for Paul, this is the ultimate tragedy. To choose separation from Jesus, who is the source of all life and love, is to embrace one's own undoing. He closes this thought by praying that God would use their suffering to bring about deep character change inside of them, so that their lives would bring honor to the name of Jesus. Paul then moves on to address a specific issue related to the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord. So somebody in the Thessalonian church community had been spreading wrong information in Paul's name, saying that God's final act of justice on human evil, the day of the Lord, it was upon them, it has come. And these people had likely been predicting dates about the end of all things, and they were frightening other Christians. And you can see why. Due to the intense persecution, they were vulnerable to somebody claiming that Jesus had already returned like a thief in the night. They'd been left behind. Maybe he abandoned the Thessalonians to their suffering. This kind of talk really ticks Paul off. It's misrepresenting his teaching. The return of Jesus should never inspire fear, but rather hope and confidence. Paul reminds them of everything he taught them about Jesus' return back when he was in town. And he gives a short summary here. It's actually too short. This paragraph has lots of puzzles and problems of interpretation. But what's clear is that he cites the well-known theme from the prophets Isaiah and Daniel, that the kingdoms of this world will continue to produce rulers who rebel against God, like Nebuchadnezzar or the king of the north did in the past. These leaders had exalted themselves to divine authority. And for Paul, these ancient kings and prophecies, they give us images. They set out a pattern that he saw fulfilled in his own day in the Roman emperors, Caligula and Nero. And he expected that it would be repeated again. That history would culminate with such a rebellious ruler, empowered by evil itself. Someone who will wreak havoc and violence in God's world, but not forever. When Jesus returns, he will confront the rebel and all who perpetrate evil, and he will deliver his people. So Paul's point here is not to give later readers fuel for apocalyptic speculation. Rather, he's comforting the Thessalonians. He's recalling the teachings of Jesus from Mark chapter 13, who said that the events leading up to his return would be very public and obvious. And so they don't need to be scared or worried that they've been left behind. Rather, they need to stay faithful until Jesus returns to deliver them. And so in his closing prayer, he asks Jesus and the Father to comfort and strengthen the Thessalonians to stay faithful to the way of Jesus. Which brings Paul to the final topic. It's a challenge for those who work idle, which doesn't just mean lazy. This refers to people who were irresponsible and who refused to work and provide for themselves, resulting in chaotic personal lives. So Paul had actually addressed this problem in his first letter, and it seems like it's gotten worse. Now, we don't know for certain why some people in this church were refusing to work. It's possible that this problem is connected to the previous one. Maybe some people thought Jesus would return very soon, and so they quit their jobs and dropped out of normal life. 
but it's more likely that Paul's addressing problem related to a practice in Roman culture called patronage. So you'd have poor people living in cities, and they would become clients, kind of like personal assistants to wealthy people. And they would live off of their occasional generosity, but there were lots of strings attached. This sometimes involved the clients in their patrons' morally corrupt way of life, not to mention it was unpredictable income. So this is what Paul seems to refer to when he says these people lead a disordered life. They're not working and they're meddling in the business of others. So Paul reminds them of the example he gave when he was with them. He didn't ask for their money. He worked a manual labor job so he could provide for himself and so he could serve the Thessalonians free of charge. He says this is the ideal. A follower of Jesus should imitate Jesus' self-giving love by working hard so they can provide for themselves and so their lives can be a benefit to other people. He concludes this with a final prayer, that in the midst of all their confusion and suffering, that God would grant them peace through the Lord Jesus the Messiah. This short letter to the Thessalonians, it helps us see that the early Christian belief in Jesus' return and the hope of final judgment these ideas were not meant for generating speculation about apocalyptic timelines. Rather, these beliefs brought hope. They inspired faithfulness and devotion to Jesus, especially for persecuted Christians facing violent opposition. And so for later generations of Christians, whether they undergo persecution or not, this letter reminds us that what you hope for shapes what you live for. And that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about. I typically don't do the video thing, but they have a really good explanation. So 2 Thess- Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But we all, always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. And so when we believe in Jesus, when we believe in the truth, we are going to be sanctified, which is a really fancy word, of just maturing in Christ. We are saved, and we are saved in Jesus, but we still have to do what? We still have to follow what Jesus tells us to do. We still have to grow. We still have to mature in Jesus. And so to do that, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are being sanctified. And so, as Paul says here, that even the Thessalonians uh, need to be doing the Lord's work. And so verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel, which means good news, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. So here's, if we were in the modern day vernacular, here's Paul calling, texting, Instagramming, Facebooking, Bible app pointing, uh, nature crying out, puts people in situations in life calling out to come to Jesus. There are many, many things that are saying, you got to be with God. He is coming back. This is hope. This is not to be a fear-mongering sermon, but Jesus is coming back. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is, our, this is why we suffer, because 80 or 90 years of this life is nothing compared to eternity. Right? I'd rather suffer here than have no suffering there. And so when I'm following Jesus, these are words to be joyful about, that Jesus is coming back. But until then, we are working for God. 
We are working for others. We are putting ourselves last. And so verse 16 and 17 says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God of our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. We don't, put, we don't help other people to put ourselves on the pedestal. We don't help ourselves. I mean, we don't help other people because we like it or we need all the glory. In all reality, we should, we should probably be anonymous in everything that we do because who should be getting the glory? God. And so this should be an encouragement and a hope. And even if we suffer... It's still to be joyful because we know it doesn't last. This 80 or 90 years that we're going to live doesn't last forever. But our spirits in the presence of Jesus Christ is going to be forever. And so I just want to let you have this word of encouragement. And see, people use this for a fear-mongering, or they, feel, they, they, they want to press it, or they want to yell at you, oh, Jesus, come back, you've got to do it right now. I don't want you to do it in fear. I want you to do it because you love Jesus, because you want to follow him, because it's a better life, it's a better way of living. Because we can love others even through persecution. We can keep going, and it's an endurance. It's a race. So when I say this, this is to encourage you, not to bring you fear. But Jesus is coming. My king is coming back. He was neither neither voted in, nor corrupted, nor paid enough money to be in a position. He did that to serve and to bring his church back to him. To love us before himself. And that should encourage us that Jesus is coming. Get ready. Get with him. He is coming. That is awesome news. Let's pray.